for Arizona Public Media. I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, have you been noticing any especially vivid dreams lately? I'll talk with Michael Gardner, the director of the Sleep and Health Research Program at the University of Arizona. Essayist Adiba Nelson returns and tells me about having to face her worst fears when she and members of her close-knit family contracted the coronavirus. And the music of Flor de Nopal, a non-binary multi-instrumentalist making a name for herself in the Tucson music scene. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. A frequent discussion happening now on Twitter is about the kinds of dreams that people are having and what seems to many like an enhanced ability to remember them while awake. To provide some guidance on the issue, I talked with Michael Grandner, the director of the Sleep and Health Research Program at the University of Arizona. He's an enthusiastic explorer of the secret world that we all spend time in when we close our eyes. This question sort of first came to me from just a person I know was a friend of mine who were having a conversation and then she's like, oh, and by the way, I've been having the craziest dreams lately. This was like back in March, um, March or April. It's like, I've just been having the craziest dreams lately. Is there anything up with that? I'm like, oh, that's, that's interesting. I wonder if, if this is something that's happening. And then a few people, other people kept saying it. And then I was in uh, my lab meeting that we have every week with all the students, which is now Zoom and not in person. Uh, and I'm like, hey, I had this, I've had these couple of conversations with people, and they keep bringing this up. And I, and I think this might be a thing. And then everyone started talking, all the, diff- all the students, whether they're grad students or undergrad students or whatever, that a lot of them were like, yeah, me too. Yeah, me too. And I'm like, I think, I think this is a phenomenon. And then what started happening is you started seeing some like reports in the media of this because clearly people are talking about this. And so that got me to thinking, we don't have any data on what happens to dreams and pandemics. Like it just doesn't exist. There's no scientific data on this, but we do know a little bit about dreaming and why this might be happening if it was something systematic. So that got me to thinking that there's, there's probably a couple of things going on. One is that part of the function of dreams and part of what just dreams are is us working through life and we go through something or we go through a change or we're trying to integrate something new into our lives. And dreams are sort of a way our brain irons out some of these wrinkles and, and helps you know, mix all the ingredients together or use whatever metaphor you want. Dreams are certainly good at that. And make this experience we're going through part of the fabric of our life and our, our, our understanding. And it just so happens that we're all going through something at the same time, and it's a similar thing. So it's like when people start a new job, they'll often dream about the job. You know, when people are, you know, just come home from a trip, they'll still be dreaming about the trip. Like, so when you go through something in your life, it often finds its way into your dreams as you're processing it and understanding it. But we're all going through a similar thing of staying at home and wearing masks and being afraid of getting sick and worrying about family members and, and all of these sorts of things. It goes without saying, we were also going through an election during a pandemic. So there was lots of 
there's lots of things that lots of people were worried about, and it was all sort of intermingled. So maybe one reason that this is happening is just, you know, we're all experiencing this together, and, and we're all experiencing something. Even if the, the way we're experiencing it might be different, we're all experiencing it. But then the other thing I was thinking was, is there something systematic about sleep itself that's changing? You know, what I was guessing was, and, and this seems to be borne out, that three things were happening to sleep. Number one, people are sleeping in a little later than they normally would. And the thing about dreams is they become more vivid and more memorable later in the night. The longer you're asleep and, and later in your sleep phase, they take on more of those characteristics. So people are sleeping in on average a little later. And on average, they might be sleeping a little longer. So, because remember, those dreams toward the end of your night tend to be more vivid. So if you've been cutting your sleep off before you really get into those without realizing, and now you're rebounding and, and having it more. Um, the other thing that I think might be happening is people's sleep might be a little more shallow. A, that happens when you stretch the sleep over a slightly longer period of time or change the schedule. But if there's more stress, that'll create also more awakenings during the night. Even if you don't remember them, you might be more likely to wake up from a dream, which would make you more likely to remember the dream you would have had anyway. So I think the two main things going on are that, first of all, there's the experience angle of it, that we're all integrating this, this new reality into our life. And dreams are a way that we do that. But then also sleep itself may have changed for some people where they might be set up to have these dreams more by sleeping in a little longer, a little later, and maybe waking up a little bit more during the night. What would you recommend as some of the basic techniques for having better sleep hygiene, a phrase that I heard you use in an interview? Yeah, sleep hygiene is a concept of how do you set yourself up for the best sleep you can? So it's not treatment for a sleep disorder. So if you have a sleep disorder, sleep hygiene won't fix it. But for most people, sleep hygiene can help a lot. So the principles of sleep hygiene remove barriers to getting good sleep. So one way to remove barriers would be avoiding bright light at night that sends a daytime signal to your brain when it's also trying to wind down and you don't want to create that confusion, um, especially light in the blue-green spectrum that triggers that circadian active uh, component in the brain. Also, avoiding caffeine later in the afternoon. Caffeine can impact sleep four to six hours in most people, but sometimes eight to ten hours or even longer after you ingest it, you have a hard time winding down. Um, alcohol. Alcohol might help you fall asleep, but it makes sleep more shallow. One or two drinks, probably not too much, but more than that might really have an impact. Nicotine, smoking, you, know, you shouldn't do it anyway, but Nicotine is a stimulant, so people who smoke at night have more insomnia. People who eat heavy meals at night get more reflux, things like that, things that are just in the way of getting good sleep. If your sleep environment, if you've got an old mattress that's not comfortable or you're too hot or you're too cold, that'll get in the way of good sleep. So removing some of these barriers, if there's noise, think about a noise machine or earplugs or closing the door, whatever you can do to, to insulate yourself. Setting regular schedules Rather than removing barriers, this is something that can help set you up for better sleep. So the brain is a pattern recognition machine. Feed it a pattern. If you want yourself to get sleepy at a certain time, start training yourself to go to bed at that time. Uh, and eventually you'll learn. If you want to get hungry at noon every day, start eating lunch at noon every day, and eventually your body will learn when to get hungry. Same with sleep. One way that can help set that up is having a regular wake time. You can't always control when your body is going to get sleepy, but you can control when you drag yourself out of bed. 
setting that regular wake time, maybe slightly earlier than you want it to be, can help set you up to get a nice morning signal um, at a regular time that can help start your day, especially if you get bright light and movement relatively soon after you wake up. That'll also not only help you with your energy level and mood during the day and help regularize your rhythms, but the little timer starts going off that starts counting down how long you've been awake. So the longer you're awake, the hungrier you are for sleep. And so usually after about 16 to 17 hours, the body's ready for sleep. So if you start that clock earlier, then you'll be ready at a regular time too. Um, Another thing would be you know, not drinking excessive liquids in the evening, putting screens down. Um, And it's not so much about the screens. The light from the screens can can be an issue, but it's more about the distraction where you mentally want to be able to wind down before you get into bed. And if you're so distracted, you're not taking that time. So anyone who gets into bed and then they say, well, my mind just keeps going and it has a hard time winding down. You should not be doing that in bed. That's like saying, I hit the brakes when I went, got in front of the stop sign, but now I'm in the middle of the intersection. Why didn't I stop at the stop sign? Well, you didn't slow down enough before you got to the intersection, before you slammed on the brakes. You don't want to do that for the bed either, because then what happens is your body just gets used to being in bed, and you can train yourself to, to wind your brain up in bed, because that's what it's used to doing. So you want to give yourself enough time to wind down. My guest was Michael Grandner, Ph.D., director of the Sleep and Health Research Program at the University of Arizona. You can find links to explore his research on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Adiba Nelson, Coronavirus, COVID-19, or as Black Twitter has so affectionately named it, Rona. Rona is here. I just have to make it to the other side of this thing. That's my only option. I'm a single mom with an underlying condition raising a child with a disability during a global pandemic. I'm terrified. Those were some thoughts shared by contributor Adiba Nelson in April of last year in an essay called Rona Needs to Stay Away. She detailed the pressure she felt as a caregiver to both her daughter and her mother to stay coronavirus-free. Just a few days before Christmas, while her 11-year-old daughter Emery was in the hospital recovering from surgery on her spinal cord, Adiba had to face her worst fear head-on. When she told me what her family had experienced, I asked her to share the story on this show, hoping that it might offer some solace to those who are living under the shadow of COVID-19. Emery has scoliosis, so they scheduled um, a spinal fusion for her, which is basically placing rods in her back to straighten out her spine. Um, And we had to do it now because the longer you wait, the greater the risks are. So I was pretty nervous about it. It's a major procedure. It was going to take about six to seven hours during a pandemic. Um, That's nerve wracking. I would say about three days after her surgery, I started to feel just the slightest little bit of a stuffy nose and a runny nose. But I thought it was just because the room was so cold. They had to keep it cold post-surgery to prevent infection. By day five, I really started in with the stuffiness, and it was an all-day affair. 
and I came to relieve my mom and the nurses said, mm, you know, you really don't sound good. You don't look good. You should probably go home. From that point, how long was it until you were able to get a COVID test? The next day. Given the situation, I explained the fact that my daughter was in the hospital. She was recovering from surgery. She was supposed to come home the next day. They were able to do a test right away and get me the results, I'd say, within four or five hours. So after you got the test results back, that basically puts you on the bench as a mom and as a caregiver in this situation. So 100%. your mother and your ex-husband, Scott, took up the slack and were prepared to take her home. Is that correct? Yes, they took her home to Scott's house on the 21st, not before conducting a COVID test on Emery because she had been exposed to me and she tested negative. So they took her home the next day. And as far as everyone knew, that was going to be the end of it, that you had it, you were contagious, but you were isolated from the others. But yep. that ended up not being the case, huh? Nope. <laughs> not at all. My mom started having symptoms on like Christmas Eve, just the stuffy runny nose. And I was just like, oh no, 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 no. Kind of trying to just like not believe that it could be it. It was just a cold. What are some of the factors that put your mom in a high-risk group? She's in that over 60 group. She's 65. She has chronic asthma, and she also has COPD, and about, I think, 35 to 45% lung capacity. So when I found out that I was positive, I called her, and all I could do was apologize because I was so scared that I had possibly given it to her because we'd been around each other. Christmas Day, she had the runny nose, stuffy nose, and a cough. And that day, Emery also uh, started to have a fever. Scott and my mom were monitoring it, but it was getting up to like 102. And that was definitely concerning, but we didn't really know what to attribute it to because she had also just had this major surgery. And she had been tested at the hospital and it had come back negative at that point. Right, exactly. In the midst of all of this, that night, the night of the 26th, Scott's father passed away in his nursing home, not from COVID. And so Scott had to leave to go to be with his mother. And my mom and Emery were at the house and her fevers just, they weren't going below 100. And so I told my mom, I was like, let me call the nurses and see what they think we should do. So Emery had the luxury of taking her first ambulance ride to TMC, and um, they ran all of the blood work, and they did a COVID test, and they were able to get the fever under control by adding ibuprofen to the mix, and so they sent her home, and they said we'd get the results back in a couple of days. My quarantine ended on the 27th. I went to pick up Emery the morning of the 28th. When I got there, my mom told me that she couldn't smell anything, and I was like, okay, you need to go get tested today immediately. And at that point, Scott was like, I'm going to go get tested right now then. If your mom can't smell anything, there's a good chance that she has coronavirus and me having been around her, I probably have it too. And I can't go see my mom, obviously, if I have it. So he went to the nursing home because he knew that he could get tested there right away. And he called me, gosh, within 15, 20 minutes. And he was like, yeah, I tested positive. I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. So I finished packing Emery up, brought her home. My mom got tested that afternoon, called me the next morning. She tested positive. 
I was like, oh, my God, (laughs) what is even happening right now? What sort of insane coronavirus twilight zone am I living in? So we're talking today on the 5th of January. Where is everybody at? Uh, How are you all doing? So I'm recovered. I feel great. Thank God. Uh, We've all had very mild cases. Today is Emery's last day of quarantine, and she's fine. She's completely fine. She probably had the mildest case of all. My mom and Scott all feel much better. Scott was actually able to do the, I think it's called monoclonal antibody infusion, where they basically infuse your bloodstream with antibodies that help keep the coronavirus symptoms from getting worse. And that helped him tremendously. Not that he was in bad shape at all, but it kept it from getting worse. And I think by the next day, he started feeling a lot better. And my mom also feels great, regardless of how mild it is. As soon as you get that positive diagnosis, your brain starts to go down um, the... Yeah, some pretty dark pathways. Because we've seen all the stories, you know. We've seen the, the refrigerator trucks parked outside of hospitals. And that was especially true for me because I'm a single mom to a child with a disability. That was my biggest fear of if I catch this and I already have an autoimmune disorder and it gets bad, what happens to my kid? And I just want to say also the nurses and the staff at TMC have been from day one absolutely amazing. Um, They took incredible care of my daughter. They took care of me when I was there, made sure that I could get home and get healthy. Just really, really great so during the time when you had to isolate from your family, you and Emery were apart for about 10 days. And yep. was is that a record for you in terms of the longest amount of time that you two have been apart? It is a record. So when I went to pick her up, I told Scott not to tell her that I was coming. I walked into her room real quietly. She was watching TV. And I just kind of stood there and she looked at me and just burst into tears. And it was just such a sweet, sweet moment because... You know, she's such a sassafras, and she's a tween and full of tween-tude. And she loves to act like she can't stand me. But at that moment, she was just a pile of mush. She knew she loved me. I knew she loved me. I don't think she let me go for a good couple minutes. A good couple minutes. It was great. My guest, Adiba Nelson, is the author of a children's book about inclusion called Meet Clarabelle Blue. She's currently writing a memoir called Ain't That a Mother?, And she regularly contributes to The Lily, a publication of The Washington Post. Flor de Nopal write serious and often sad songs that still make you want to dance. The electronic musician, also known as Bea Velazquez, draws on themes including deep ties to the desert, a traditional music upbringing, and discovery of identity. The result is music that's rooted in this time and place, yet much like the artist, it defies expectations. You'll hear examples in this profile, produced by Andrew Brown, including Bea and sister Mariana, reflecting on some family photos. You don't know what's gonna happen once you get on that stage, but 
you know all of the things that you've done to get on that stage. Flor de Nopal, which means cactus flower, is an electronic synth dark wave music project that consists of me and about five machines that I communicate with. Open the door, I see you too, and I'll wait for you now, baby, I'll wait for you now, baby. These lyrics are like so emo but the beat is like going and people just want to dance. And, and like, that's literally like how I feel in life, right? And so I think it's just so special to be able to like have that combination of two elements that seem contradictory, you know, or they're like opposites, but really they're part of the whole. Happy on Valentine's Day. My name is Flor de Nopal. I'm super excited to play for you all tonight. Glad you're enjoying it. What's with this haircut, though? But that's what I was talking about, Oh, mom and her little mushroom cut. And look and at this Oh my god, I am clearly so upset here. Do you see this? <laughs> that is the same face you make now when you're upset. It's exactly the same. That's how our family's always been. We talk a lot of crap, but it's all like constructive criticism is what we like to call it. You know, it's never too mean. I remember how much you hated these photos growing up. They made you so upset. I hated the photos, but I loved this suit because... I think the costume was awesome. Well, also this was like, I got to be a boy in this. I had, I like, little boys were oh, in the court. It's true. Yeah, and so they, they dressed me up as a little boy. You always looked forward to that outfit. Yeah. I mean, I've always loved to sing, and my dad's an opera singer, so he always taught us how to sing and stuff, and there was always music playing in the house. Always kept us really entertained when it came to being in music, like, Bea would sing and do the cello, and then I would do the viola, or tried. <laughs> but Bea always had, like, a really natural talent to music, something that I've always known that I didn't have. They just would pick something up and make something out of it. end of middle school was when I started to get like super serious with the cello. When I started at ASU, I started as um, a music performance student. And I was playing and practicing probably six, seven hours a day. While I loved it, I felt so detached from all of these other really important things to me. So I ended up switching my, my major and studying something completely different. And so I just kind of took a break. And that's when electronic music kind of like really came to be. So I identify as trans, like non-binary. When I moved back to Tucson three years ago, the main reason, even though I didn't tell anyone, the main reason I moved back was because I really wanted to have my top surgery. And my parents live here, my sister lives here, and I have like longtime friends here. And so I knew that if I was gonna go through that process that I needed to have support. 
Flor de Nopal as a project really aligns to like the progression and the development and the acceptance of my trans identity in a lot of ways. started to think about how challenging the desert is, but also like how rewarding the desert is. Like the cactus flower, right? Like they're so bright, they're so full of energy, and they are literally like in the middle of all these thorns, right? And that's kind of like how I thought about this experience of moving back and getting top surgery. It was like this really beautiful thing is about to happen. And I'm like ready for that bloom to open up, but it's also really tough, right? There's a lot of like literal spines all around the situation. Maybe a year after I chose that name for my project, I also learned that uh, cactus flowers are actually like, they're like non-binary, they're intersex. They, all cactus flowers have both female and male parts. Being able to walk in my truth, as challenging as that can really be on a literal day-to-day, -day, is the only way that I'm gonna be able to like live my life fully. One of the things I fundamentally believe is that people don't often want to be at the front wheel of their lives. If you have reached a space where you call yourself trans, you have done a lot of that ego death, reflective, deconstructive work and decided to like take your life into your own hands and that makes us really special. We just heard the music of Flor de Nopal and a profile produced by Andrew Brown. The TV version of this story debuts Sunday at 6.30 on the next edition of Arizona Illustrated on PBS6, or you can watch it right now on the Arizona Illustrated Facebook page. Also, Flor de Nopal has just released a new album, and you can find the link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's interim news director is Duncan Moon. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.